0: You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 59 What Happened to the Church. This is the first episode in a series on the Middle Ages of Church History. Uh, I am teaching this currently at the church where I preach, and I thought it would also make a good series for the podcast. So, this is the first installment where we introduce the Middle Ages and talk about a few questions that arise when we start talking about this time period, the best way to start this discussion is to talk about this way of designating this large period of time ranging from about the 5th century to the 15th century, uh, beginning after the early church period and ending around the time of the Reformation. Uh, We call it the Middle Ages or the medieval period or the Dark Ages, and that designation really comes from people that came up in the Renaissance or the Reformation looking back on the last 1,000 years. And from their point of view you had the light of the Greek Classical Age and the Roman Age. You had that time period where there were writers and thinkers and philosophers and artists They respected very much, and then you had this big gap of time, and then you had the Renaissance, the rebirth, where they returned to those classical thinkers and embellished on that, developed that more, and thinking resumed. So, they are the ones who named this time period, and it's not a very flattering name if you think about it. Uh, The Dark Ages kind of gives you the sense of a time period when there wasn't any progress in thinking or enlightenment. Middle Ages is just kind of, hey, you know, we have a time period here sandwiched between two really good time periods. Uh, Medieval means pretty much the same thing. In their view, the view of the Renaissance thinkers, uh, there was no scientific accomplishments during that time period no great art produced, no great leaders born, and that's why we call it today the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. However, if you think more objectively about this time period, their point of view is not exactly accurate because there were many important developments during that 1,000-year time period. And if we don't study it, there's a lot of questions that go unanswered about why we do the things that we do today. So it's very important to look at it, and it's a lot of time to cover, but I think we can do it in just a few episodes and have a nice series here in the podcast uh, to get some episodes out on, on church history, which is something I've wanted to do and haven't had an opportunity to do on this podcast quite yet. Now, where do you start when you talk about the Middle Ages for church history It's a little different than talking about the Middle Ages in general because most people would start a discussion of the Middle Ages in general with the 5th century, as I said. And I think you really, to find a good break in history, you need to back it up about 100 years from there to the beginning of Constantine's reign because a major shift in church history occurs with Constantine. And so, that's where we're going to begin our discussion of the Middle Ages, really in the 4th century, with the beginning of Constantine's reign in 306 AD. Now, to talk about Constantine, you have to back up even a little bit more to an emperor named Diocletian. Diocletian was the last great persecutor of the church, not to say he was the final emperor who... Persecuted the church, but the last major persecution occurred under the reign of Diocletian, 284 to 305. Uh, You could say, really, that no emperor was a fiercer enemy of Christianity than Diocletian. And there were some reasons for that. Diocletian came along at a time when the Roman Empire was in serious trouble. And the Roman Empire didn't really begin to fall officially until 410 and Diocletian is credited really with saving it during his time because if it were not for him it might have fallen a hundred years prior to that Uh, during the 3rd century 30 emperors had claimed the throne and Diocletian decided something has to be done to restructure this vast empire because it's getting out of control and it's just bogged down by civil war as people are vying for the imperial throne one right after the other so what he tried to do was eliminate competition for imperial power by dividing it up into four parts this is called in government a tetrarchy uh, based on the word for four there would be four bases of power in the Roman Empire instead of just one and the two highest would be called the Augusti and Diocletian filled one of those seats and the two lower courts would be known as the Caesars and these four rulers would have term limits of 20 years and so you can picture that in your mind a new form of government with term limits four reigning kings rulers two higher power two lower powers but all of them very powerful over vast territories this was the tetrarchy and uh, Diocletian and three others uh, started reigning in that in that manner in about uh, 284 now nobody knows for sure why but Diocletian near the end of his term started an intense persecution against Christians And uh, it seems like maybe he was doing this to promote loyalty to Rome. Remember, he's trying to save the Roman Empire. And so maybe it was that. Uh, We don't know for sure. But we do know that the persecution was intense. And there was a lot of torture, killing, imprisonment, maiming of Christians. And they were willing to do it rather than renounce Jesus Christ. And instead of promoting loyalty to Rome, this kind of backfired for Diocletian and those loyal to the Roman pantheon and those who were zealous for Roman ways, because the public opinion actually swayed towards these Christians who were being persecuted in such a fierce manner. And after Diocletian's time, there was a successor in the East named Galerius who reluctantly officially ended a roman persecution of christians by issuing an edict of toleration on his deathbed so that brings us up to constantine constantine comes up in this tetrarchy and instead of settling the issue of leadership and ending civil war it seems in this is just my opinion and i'm no historian but it seems to have just made things worse because everything fell apart after diocletian uh, the, four, the four official emperors just continued to fight over the number one seat and then there were others who wanted to be included in the Tetrarchy and so sometimes you would have five instead of four and it was just a total mess I spent a lot of time reading about it this morning trying to sort out you know, all the positions and, and who was in charge when and it's very, very difficult to do And so I'm not going to bore you with those details. It's not important for you to to know them. Just know that Constantine came into power during the death rattles of this Tetrarchy, and it just wasn't working. And he had a rival named Maxentius who had moved into Rome and assumed imperial power there. And Constantine and others had formed an alliance to defeat Maxentius. But Constantine had a smaller army, and uh, he was not expected to win in his battle against Maxentius. Despite that, in the spring of 312, he approached Rome, uh, crossing the Alps with the plan to dislodge Maxentius from Italy and to capture Rome. And it is said, according to Constantine's own accounting... That when he came to the Milvian Bridge just outside of Rome, he had this dream, and in the dream he saw a cross in the sky with the words, in this sign, conquer. Now, up to this point, Constantine supposedly was not uh, a person who worshipped Christ or practiced the Christian faith. He just had this dream, and he believed it was a sign from heaven and so he had crosses painted on all the shields of his soldiers and charged the next day on Maxentius's greater superior force and actually won. And so he looked upon the success in battle as proof of the power of Christ and the superiority of the Christian religion. So the story goes. Uh, Constantine then became regarded as a great supporter of the Christian faith uh, in 313, the very next year, he legalized Christianity. That Some people think that he made it the official state religion, but uh, Constantine wasn't the one who did that. That was done a little later in 380 by an emperor named Theodosius. But Constantine, he shared his power with another emperor until 324, when he deposed that emperor and had him hanged and became emperor over the whole empo- empire in 324 Uh, he wasn't baptized until he was on his deathbed in 337 which may say that constantine was just interested in christianity as a way of uniting the empire and i think he did have some political reasons for supporting christianity but there's also another explanation for this deathbed conversion so to speak and that was this theory that people had back then that you couldn't sin after you were baptized. If you sinned after you were bat- baptized, they reasoned, you had no second law of pardon, and uh, you were going to be condemned for sure at that point. Of course, we know the Bible doesn't teach that. Uh, passages of Scripture like First John chapter one show, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Christians. Will and do sin after their conversion, and there is a second law of pardon involving confession and repentance and prayer. But this was, you know, an idea, a false idea that circulated at that time, just as false ideas circulate around our day and time. So maybe Constantine got involved in this uh, idea that you wait until the last possible moment to be baptized, and that would ensure your eternal salvation. Who knows? The, the fact is, he didn't act like a Christian during his reign. He murdered a lot of people. He behaved much in the way that a Roman emperor would behave, and not very much like you would expect a good Christian to behave. But legally, politically, he did a lot for Christianity in terms of ending the persecution. And there are some other things that we'll bring up about Constantine later on in the podcast in terms of his... Um, his support and his promotion of Christianity that are important as well. But that gets us started on this time period. It probably started with Constantine in three hundred six. That's for all intents purposes the, the beginning of the Middle Ages so far as we're discussing it on this podcast. Now you think about the shift that occurred between Diocletian and Constantine. You go from a persecuted underground church to first a legal religion and then a little later in the 4th century the official state religion. What kind of impact would that have upon the church? You can probably guess. It would... You know, any opportunity and privilege is dangerous in terms of faith because... It just seems like persecution purifies. It it seems like hardship weeds out the people who are not serious about their faith and convicts those who are, and comfort, convenience, and privilege have a corrupting influence. It just seems like that's the way things happen, and that's what happened in the church as well. During the Middle Ages, the church eventually grew to be the most powerful institution on earth, and there are are a couple of stories that I could share with you to illustrate the great power that the Roman Catholic Church had during this time frame. Uh, There's one story that goes back to the end of the 4th century, where there was a charioteer accused of homosexuality in the city of Thessalonica, and uh, he was imprisoned for homosexuality by the governor and he was so popular with the citizens of that city that they actually murdered the governor to free the charioteer and when the Emperor Theodosius heard about this he responded by slaughtering 7,000 Thessalonians for this act now what they did was terrible but his response was I think by all accounts heavy-handed he went overboard well there was a very brave bishop in Milan named Ambrose and he demanded that the Emperor repent now he wasn't the Pope Uh, the church had not grown to that point yet Ambrose was a powerful religious leader but he was still just a bishop in Milan Milan was not even one of the centers provincial centers for church power Uh, Ambrose, though, was a very influential leader, and he demanded, he stood up to the emperor and said, it was wrong to slaughter all of these people, you must repent. And when Theodosius refused, Ambrose had him excommunicated, basically kicked him out of the church and refused communion, and in their view, the Eucharist, or the communion, was the way that you stayed in fellowship with God. Without it, you were lost, you were condemned. And so, what would the emperor do? Would he use his power against Ambrose, or would he bow to Ambrose's religious leadership, religious influence? In the end, Ambrose won that battle. The emperor acquiesced, and in front of a crowded congregation of people, he took off his imperial robes and asked pardon for sins. And at first, Ambrose did not uh, give that pardon to him, and eventually through several shows of penitence uh, he relented and brought uh, theodosius back into the church uh, there's another example years later in in about 800 when Pope Leo the crowned Charlemagne Holy Roman Emperor just the thought of a pope crowning a king and controlling and choosing and appointing a king is just amazing you, you see how powerful the church Became another thing that happened in the church is a restructuring. You go from the New Testament organization of the church, where you have local autonomous churches led by a group of elders, like you see it, for example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, where Paul and Barnabas go through Asia Minor appointing elders in the plural for every church singular, or uh, you see Paul giving instructions to Titus on the island of Crete to appoint elders in every city elders in the plural for for every city in the singular you go from that simple New Testament organization of the church to a hierarchical structure that develops through the Middle Ages and it develops very quickly and the way that it happened is there would be uh, provinces of the Roman Empire and naturally bishops came to lead a whole province of churches and then that grew into a more hierarchical structure in which the bishops and the chief towns of the imperial provinces they came to be called archbishops and uh, the term for that jurisdiction was a C so the, bi- the archbishop's territory was called a C. That's uh, S-E-E, as in looking at something, C. Uh, maybe from oversight or something like that. And then, eventually, the most important provinces or the most important cities rose to the top. And those were uh, Rome and Alexandria in the west, Constantinople and Antioch in the east... Uh, Rome and Alexandria were, for the most part, Latin-speaking churches. Constantinople and Antioch, for the most part, were Greek-speaking, and then eventually they added a fifth to it, Jerusalem, for its spiritual significance. And the archbishops in those five churches were called patriarchs. And eventually, one patriarch rose to the top in Rome, and as you can probably guess, he began to wear the name Pope so this hierarchy developed during this time period which as you know is extremely influential and caused a lot of changes another thing that you see happening in this shift from persecuted church to imperial church is that the church became militarized it, it began to fight wars uh, Islam developed during the Middle Ages and as this happened, the Muslim world grew very rapidly. At, at one point, at its height, the Muslim world was three times bigger than Christendom, and so the Church reacted to this through war, uh, and these are called the Crusades against Muslims to regain the Holy Lands. Uh, most historians regard this as a great failure, and uh, you know, I would say most, if not all, Christians look back on the bloodshed in shame. But this is the kind of thing that happened with the growing power and the militarization of the church. And many other examples could be given, but that gets you started in, in seeing the great shifts that occurred in Christianity during this time period. And so by the end of the Dark Ages, the official church looked very different from the church that you read about in the New Testament. And so everybody always has this question when they hear this and they they want to know what happened to the church during the middle ages is the version that we see in history of this imperial church all that there was and if that's the case it's a far cry from the church you read about in the New Testament and and you want to ask did the church completely disappear for that long of a period of time? And was there no hope on earth for people who were lost? I don't take that dim a view of things, but I do think that in general there was a departure from the New Testament pattern, a falling away, to use biblical language, with regard to this. And the apostles knew that this was coming. Paul in particular saw it coming as he was talking to the elders of Ephesus on the island of Miletus. In that speech to them, he says this according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and following. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And you'll notice his warning has to do with the time that would come after his departure, that is, after his death. And he said, from your own selves, from the ranks of the elders, men will arise speaking perverse things, not sparing the flock, and they will draw away disciples after them. I think that's very interesting because that's exactly what happened in the Middle Ages with the official state church in fact uh, I think in the third episode that we'll talk about in the third episode of the series we'll talk about monasticism and the monks and what they were doing and withdrawing and they did withdraw from society but if you look at what they were doing they were not so much withdrawing from the world as they were withdrawing from the world in the church the dangers outside the church were not so, not nearly as, as serious to them as the dangers that were coming from within the church, particularly from within the church leadership. And this is what Paul saw coming, and uh, he warned about it in Acts chapter 20. He also speaks about it in 1 Timothy chapter 4, and some of the sin that he names, some of the deceitful doctrines that he names. Uh, are very interesting in how specific they are to what occurred during the Middle Ages. Uh, in First Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, "...the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared." Now listen to this, "...who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe..." And know the truth now when did that kind of stuff really get going especially forbidding marriage that sounds a lot like the celibacy required of the priesthood during the Middle Ages as the Catholic Church developed in the West more so than the Orthodox Churches in the East Paul saw it coming and he named it an apostasy a falling away from the faith uh, this is the language that he uses in his second letter to the Thessalonians. In Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, he's telling them that the Lord hasn't returned, they haven't missed out on the second coming of Christ, because before Jesus will retur- uh, return, two things must happen first. Number one, there will be a general falling away, or an apostasy from the Greek apostasia. And number two, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Now, I don't want to get into the meaning of who the man of lawlessness was. I I can't really tell you with certainty who it is. I have some opinions about it, but I'm more interested for the purposes of this episode to think about what the falling away was that he talks about. And it must be a departure from the faith like he's talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 4 on the level of the the apostasy warns about in Acts chapter 20. Paul saw these things coming. They would come soon after his departure. And so, all of this lines up with that. The question that remains, though, is did this mean the church completely disappeared? And I don't think that is borne out by the scriptures. I don't think the prophecies about the church allow us to give up on the church in the Middle Ages. And, um, the prophecies that I'm speaking of here uh, are in passages such as Daniel chapter 2 where Daniel interprets this dream of Nebuchadnezzar about the image with the different layers of metal, the statue, the head of the statue made of gold and the chest made of silver and the belly and thighs of bronze and the uh, feet of iron mixed with clay. He said each layer in that statue represents a different empire that would be in control. Starting with Babylon as the gold, and then Persia following as the silver part of the statue, and that is followed by Greece uh, in the bronze, and Rome would be represented by the iron and the iron mixed with clay. Uh, Daniel, he doesn't name the empires in that chapter, but if you compare what he's describing with history, that's how it rolls out and he says that during the time of the Roman emperors during the time of the Roman kings the church would be established and the way that he describes the church doesn't leave any room for a disappearance of the church at any stage in its history here's what he says when this vision comes to a climax in Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 and in the days of those kings the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So he says it shall never be destroyed. It shall stand forever. In my mind, that means there's no room for the church to disappear, to vanish away. This corresponds with what Jesus predicts about the church much later in Matthew chapter 16 verse 18 when he tells his disciples upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it now hell there is not really what he says he's not using the word Gehenna for hell everlasting fire he's using the word Hades which is another way of speaking of death and he's basically saying the church will not die and if someone is trying to say the church completely disappeared during the Middle Ages, they're claiming that the church died for a period of time. Now, maybe they'll say in the Reformation or later on it resurrected, but they're still trying to argue the case for a death of the church. And Jesus said the church will not die. Not even Hades itself can prevail against the church. And so that's, that gives me hope and gives me faith That in pockets here or there, anywhere where people were able to learn the truth, learn the gospel, the imperishable seed of the word, and apply it to their hearts, they were able to practice the faith of Christianity and the church existed, wherever those people were. And there is evidence of that here and there, but not a whole lot of it. And there's a simple explanation why. Maybe you've heard the, the saying that the winner writes the history. Well, that's very much the case when you look at the history of the Middle Ages. The Imperial Church won that battle. They won the supremacy of the religious establishment, and the Imperial Church wrote the history. So all we have to go on is really what, what it said about the events during that time period, and they described themselves and they don't say a whole lot about the way that other Christians practice their faith. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. And if you look at these prophecies and what the way the church was described, you take heart in knowing that the church cannot be destroyed. Either the church existed in the Dark Ages or God's Word is not true. We're going to leave it there for this episode, but stay tuned for many more on Wide Margins.